Amen. Good morning. Grateful that you're here. And I want to start today with, um, I want to ask a few questions. I want you to think. And I know that's kind of hard because I'm going to challenge you to think. But as you're thinking, I'm also going to be talking. Right? And uh, so I want to give you this first thing to think about, to really ponder that Jesus Christ lives. What happens if I just said that over and over again? He lives. Jesus Christ lives. When you start to weigh the significance of the power that he lives, ponder that thought and and, and think about what that means to you and I. What's the significance that Jesus Christ lives for this world? The Bible says that he died for this world so that this world could have a savior. He lives. He died for your family and your friends. He lives, but even more specifically, he narrows it down. Forget all the others. He died for you. Just for you. How personal, how beautiful, how amazing is that, that he lives Jesus is not simply some historical character that we study and break down the Greek and Hebrew to understand and dig into his life and what he said and what he did. He's more than that. He's living. He's breathing. He's physically, spiritually, eternally live right now. The very moment that I'm saying this, you have to realize and come to a place in your life that he is alive right here, right now, and hopefully you can feel the power of God in your life. It's amazing. It's amazing to think because of his life and because he's alive, if I press into that and I put my faith and trust in that, then the Bible tells me that I should be alive. I should be lifted up. I should be living and speaking the, 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 the spirit of God stuff in my own personal life. John 10 says that I should be living in life to the abundant. And if we're not, Why? Why do you believe he's alive in this world and for everybody but you? For God said that he is not a God of the dead, but he said in the Bible that he is the God of the living, the living God. He's not a God of the dead. Death is not his fear. Death is not the issue. Actually, in the Bible, in our life, death is life. Over the next few weeks, we're going to study this topic, the death of death. Going from a place of dead to a place of life with the concept of the death of death. Over the few weeks that we head into Easter, we're going to open up our Bible and we're going to look at a bunch of topics that die in Jesus Christ. And so when we do that, and if you really believe that, it opens up your life to live a a, a better, more powerful life in Christ Jesus. We're going to engage the Bible so that this living God will breathe life back into us. He will speak holiness over us, bring us back to life, or encourage us to live a more holier holier life throughout the day. And that's what he wants to do through death. You have to die to self to really experience Jesus. Death is not the end. But as Christians, we know it's just the beginning. That's why Easter Sunday is always about death. 
Because the days after he resurrects and life becomes part of death. The Bible, uh, one of the famed pastors says, death can't hold him. And so death can't hold you. So why are you believing in the death that's holding you back for living in the life that Jesus has for you? Jesus is alive. He's alive right now. Today we're going to talk about the death of death or the death of rejection in the death of death. Here's what Isaiah writes about death. It says, Isaiah 25, 8, and this will be our memory verse. It says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears. He will remove fears, all insults, mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. Now, I don't know about you, but at the end of every one of my emails, it says, blessings, Jeff Rodriguez. That's cute. But when it says the Lord has spoken, it means that's the end. There's nothing else to be said. If death is a shadow and it's not an issue, then it shouldn't be an issue for you. And you should press into that thought, into that theory, and live a life far beyond what you can see and imagine. Because the death of death brings the death of rejection, pain, sorrow, suffering, fear, anger, unforgiveness. It starts to really evolve in everything that we are. Today I want to deal with rejection. Now... It's not hard to talk about rejection because all of us have been rejected. I was a salesman for years, and I got rejected more than I ever should have. My ego could barely handle it. But we've been rejected in jobs. We've been rejected uh, dating. Any successful daters in here? No, everybody's been rejected at once or twice in their life. Or they don't date at all because they're so a fear of rejection. Rejection is tough. Here's the definition. To throw out as worthless, useless, substandard, to pass over, to skip, to rebuff, especially to deny acceptance, care, or to love someone. That's our definition. Now, there's this man who wrote a book. It's called The Rejection Syndrome. And I'm going to use his little chart that he put up. And uh, here's the thing. Our app, we have a really dynamic app. And this chart is in the app. If you download our app to your app store and you go to Journey Camarillo, this and a bunch of other stuff that we don't put in our notes is on there because it's digital and we can fill it up. And it's just a great way to get connected. You can take notes. And for you Facebookers, it makes it look like you're really doing stuff at church. So, okay. So this is the rejection syndrome, and this is what we do when we feel rejected. Here's what it says. What we hear is you don't measure up. When I'm rejected, I'm like, oh, sorry, uh, you don't measure up. And, and so we take that feeling, and because of that, we have this belief of empowered that I'm bad, I'm inferior, I'm less than, I'm unworthy, I'm worthless. That's what we receive in rejection. If we continue in this life cycle, then the pain that we feel is different. The pain is about isolation, it's abandonment, self-doubt, and self-hatred. We start feeling these things, and then we start to play games with our life. We start to manipulate our life. We do it with denial and withdrawal. We compensate, manipulation, and we start to attack others. And we start to pretend that we aren't rejected. We play these games. And the end of the life cycle comes back to the same message. The message we send is, now that I don't measure up, neither do you. And it goes on and on and on. And Jesus says, no, this has to stop. 
This can't continue to go on. Someone needs to intercede and stop this cycle, this rejection syndrome, so that you and I can be whole and right and quit rejecting other people and projecting something you don't want in their life. The guy that wrote the book, Charles Solomon, writes this. Rejection is the absence of meaningful love. We've been talking about love for five weeks. The absence of meaningful love. Today we're going to talk about rejection and we're going to go to what many of us call the, uh, the Mount Everest of prophecy. It's the largest piece of scripture in prophecy. Prophecy is a, a place where Isaiah is a prophet and he's writing down words from God about what is going to happen in the future. And today we're going to deal with what we call the Mount Everest of prophecy. Through the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53, all of the text in there is the heart of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the heart of the text in the Gospels. It's beautiful. It's, it's splendor. Shows the, the work of Christ and what he did in his ministry and how he died and how he resurrected. It's really the essence of, of all that was done in Calvary. And obviously then it would be the most quoted text from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, I want to start with, we've talked about Jesus is alive. Now, I'm going to use a little bit of the passion. Anybody see the passion, Mel Gibson's passion? Uh, Pretty gory. But I'm going to use some of the pictures to help us understand as we go through this, this suffering servant. Now, in the beginning of the passion, you have this pretty handsome guy, and I'm saying that, you know, I'm okay with my man card. I can say he's a pretty good looking guy. Look at, you know, his eyes are piercing, and this is the, what we call the suffering servant that we talk about in Isaiah chapter 52 and into 53. He's, he's a pretty recognizable face, and he, he does a great job in the passion. And so as we discuss the Mount Everest of prophecy, we're going to deal with the rejection. And there's no better place than to go to Jesus Christ and these prophetic words of how he is going to be dealt with through the kingdom and through the end of his life. So if you're able to stand, let's stand and let's read and ask God to work. And speak life into our death. To speak life into our rejection. Isaiah 52. And this is the last three verses. It says the Lord said. Which is important. Once again the Lord is speaking. At the beginning of this chapter. The Lord is speaking to Israel. And he's speaking to his children. He says I'm going to send rescue. I'm going to send help to you. And at the end he sends what we call this suffering servant. The Lord says my servant will succeed in all of his tasks. In his tasks. He will be highly honored. Many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that they hardly, he hardly looked human. But now many nations will marvel at him. The kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something that they never knew. As we walk into uh, Easter, we're asking you guys to start praying for people in our community. We're praying in teams, first and second service. They're praying for salvations in this side of the room. In the middle section, we're praying for God to reveal himself, show himself through the word of God and through other people, and over here for God to transform himself. And we want all of that to happen in this church, but all throughout Ventura County, California, and the world. It's not just about us. The kingdom of God is way bigger than this small little castle that we've created. So let's move into a place of praying and, 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 and working on ourselves going into Easter. So let's pray. You know, the last thing I was going to say is this. My, my sister-in-law always loves when I say this. And, and I, I challenge you, pray that God will speak to you today. I believe there's a spirit. The worship set us up for a, a good opportunity to hear God today. 
So if you ask God to speak and you can get rid of my annoying voice, it'll probably help you understand and you will hear God. So I challenge you to pray as I'm praying. Father, we come before you and we ask that as you speak and you talk about the death of death and how you can break down rejection through that process, that you will transform us. That you will speak an oracle to our heart. We will, you will reveal yourself and we will be forever changed. And beyond that, Lord, that you will bring someone to a place of salvation. But all of us will grow in our salvation experience with you. We love you, King Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Go ahead and be seated. I said this first service. I don't know. Does anybody have weird voices in their head? Uh, my wife's a mental health nurse, by the way, if you need help. But um, every time I say, go ahead and be seated, uh, here's what I really want you to do. Everybody stand up. We're going to do this. I feel like I'm supposed to say, all right, before you sit down, let's all turn around. Come on, turn around, dude. Act like you. I mean, come on. Church is supposed to be fun. It shouldn't be so stuffy. If you can't handle it, sit down. I said first service, every time I see that, that's what I feel like. It's like we should jump around, do cartwheels and flip and stuff, but I never do it, so I got the guts. Anyways, let's move on. The Lord says about this suffering servant, there's going to be a moment that this servant's going to be unrecognizable. If you look at that passion movie, there's a moment when we first see him carrying the cross that you can barely recognize that beautiful suffering servant that we saw. Look at the image. You start seeing the skeletal figures in his face. Who is that man? That's the life that we're going to live by? You can start to barely recognize his face. The Bible tells us that in verse 14, the servant is going to shock the world and we're barely going to recognize him during this beating. And then in verse 13, the beginning, it says, this servant will be honored like it or not. He will be honored in this world. You're either going to buy it or you're not. And you're going to be there with him and in heaven or you're not going to be. And at the end, verse 15 says, the servant's message will amaze. It will confound people. They will be stuck and they will struggle, but there will also be joy and uh, uh, jubilee because of this message. They will see and understand things, something that they have never known. Because Jesus is alive. He rose. He ascended. But he's alive right now. Do you feel him? Do you know him? Do you want to know him? As we move to 53, the first part is the Lord replies. And now we're digging into the Mount Everest, the greatest text in the Old Testament that helps us understand who Jesus is. It's this big prophetic text that we climb up to. And here's what it says, 53 verse 1 and 2. The people reply, and here's their reply. Who would have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? It was the will of the Lord that his servant was to grow like a plant taking root in dry ground. He had no dignity or beauty to make us take notice of him. There was nothing, to attract, uh, nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. 
In this text, as we're looking to uh, what they're communicating, this is Jesus' ministry. You see the birth of Jesus, the prediction of something out of nothing, out of this dry, parched land, something's going to come up, a shoot, something beautiful that's going to transform a, a desert bloom. Yeah. Somebody's excited about Jesus. This is the ministry of God. That's actually a pastor's son, so he knows right when to hit it hard. So Jeremy's been really changing Zeke to get him into preaching mode. So thanks, Zeke. At the end, we see that we, the, the places we won't get to today, we're going to see in this text that there's a death, there's a burial, and there's a resurrection for the glory of God. But here, there's this prediction of who Jesus is. And it says, out of nothing, he's this simple human's going to come into this world and change us. No dignity, no beauty. Today, I don't know about you, when I was growing up, there was this word posse. You guys ever heard of the word posse? No, I'm asking the young kids. Oh, you guys are old. We know that. They're like, yeah, I, I heard of that once. But Jesus didn't come into the world. I don't know, have you ever heard when a, 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 somebody that uh, one of the leaders of the world have a baby or they're, 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 they have a baby? There's like a hundred leaders give gifts. They make amazing gifts. When Jesus comes into the world, he's got a couple of wise men and a couple of shepherds. It's really not that fan-filled. There's nothing that really draws us to him. He's just a simple man. That's God. That's how God works. We've got to look beyond and look within so that we can draw close to him. Here's what verse 3 says. We despise him and rejected him. He endured suffering and pain. No one would even look at him. We ignored him as if he were nothing. At some point, as he is on the, the, the bed of Calvary, as he's getting ready to be lifted up, and his face is broken and his life is broken, we see the image, and it's like we don't even want to be with him. We reject him. It's like, that's not my Savior. He would stand up and fight more. He would fight the battle in a more powerful spiritual way. There's a picture of him just sitting on the, on the ground, beaten, ready to be hoisted up. And that's the moment where everybody rejects him. When you go to Israel and you go to this Golgotha area, there's only a few people up there. Where's all the fans? Where, where's the thousands that he fed? Where's the crowd shouting? Where's all the people that have been healed standing up for Jesus? Where is he now? Where are they now? Even his disciples aren't there. As we look... At this rejection concept, we deal with it at the cross at Calvary. The world has an idea. Think about what your Savior, if you were, uh, had the ability to design your Savior in Fortnite or something that you're playing, and you could design a Savior, what would he look like? You know, the world would say, well, I want him to fulfill all my wants and all my desires. That's what he would look like. It's like someone that's just going to take care of my every need. I'm going to kind of snap my fingers and I'm going to have a butler there and he's going to solve all my problems. I need money. I need health. I need a relationship. I need something. My back hurts. Masseuse. That's what we believe. And that's what they believed here. The world wanted a savior that was going to deal with their materialism. How am I going to acquire and be like the neighbors. They wanted someone that was going to have political stout. They were going to have this mindset that this guy is going to politically take over. And if we just join into him, this movement is going to sweep the nation or the world. They want someone that's got social prestige. Hey, there's my friend. He's a savior. 
a reputation that supersedes him. That's the guy. But really, they didn't because that's who he is. And at the moment of being broken and at the foot of the cross and being lifted up into the cross, at that moment of brokenness, they despise him as we despise him. We reject him as they rejected him. We made our servant, our, our suffering servant, a slave to your sin. Think about that. We put him on the cross because he's doing the heavy lifting for your sin. What are you doing for your sin? How disrespectful. But Jesus does all the work. We put a cheap price on his head, 30 pieces of silver. But God can take something cheap like my own life and make it godly gold, heavenly riches, beautiful in the eyes of the beholder, beautiful in the eyes of the kingdom of God. He loves that rag to riches story because that's what he designed. That's the one that we believe in, this rag to riches story. At one point, he's got people, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then a few days later, crucify him. Hatred, hatred, hatred. I'm rejecting you now because I don't think you're going to give me what I want. How often do we reject God? Because we're not getting what we want. Listen to verse 4. But he endured that suffering that should have been ours. The pain that we should have borne. He endured it. Because he wanted to. Because in him life was going to transform you and I. And the way that we see the world. All the while we thought that this suffering was a punishment sent by God. A lot of times we think in the moment of, uh, of trial, God's punishing me. That's what the world thinks. What kind of Savior would punish his kids? That's what we believe. Because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows that he received. All of us were like sheep lost, each of us going their own way. But the Lord made the punishment fall on him, the punishment that all of us deserve. Most of you know this message as by his stripes we are healed. By his wounds and his transgressions we are healed. New King James translation. But I think this translation helps us understand it. Our punishment, he resolves. Our rejection, our anger, our hurt, he fixes. While we were lost, the blows he receives brings us closer to God. At that moment when Jesus was beating and each blood drop hit the ground when he's you got that Roman soldier and he's huffing and puffing and he's you know, thrashing this man, that blood was for you. That blood was for your life. That blood is to make you right. And we look at those drops and we think about that blood and it barely phases us. Oh yeah, Sunday the pastor might cry a little bit about it and show a picture. But on Friday, nothing. On Saturday night, absolutely nothing. On Monday morning, I don't see God in traffic and at work and my lousy boss. We reject him. But Jesus endures. 
He endures. This is the heart of the gospel. Verse 4 to 6 is the heart of the gospel. It's the engine that drives us into the arms of Jesus. It's the reason that we believe that he is alive and that in him my life can be changed and resurrected. This is the engine that drives us right into the arms of God. And beyond that, it connects us into a relationship with the Father without having to go before anyone else. He endures. This innocent, suffering servant dies for your and my sin. It's a sacrifice. And he destroys in one blow, in one cross, he destroys the religious system of the Israelites. It's gone. There's no longer a need for a pilgrimage to the high priest in Jerusalem and to ascend into the mountain and bring an offering. It's done once and for all. We don't put him on the cross again and again. We don't have to. And however rejected you have felt, he has done that deed to break the stronghold of rejection and walk into the glory of your life and build you up in that rejection. He's a lamb led to slaughter. Why did Christ come? Have you ever asked, why did he come for your life? I've asked, not for you. Well, I have asked for you too, but for my own life too. It's like, why did you come for me? My sin, for sure. I'm a sinner living in sainthood. But he also came to save me from myself and my mistakes. Anybody made a mistake today yet? Well, it's way late. It's almost 12. So, yeah, we most of us have jacked up three or four times already. Yeah, keep your hand up, bro. Thanks. Yeah, we've made mistakes. But Jesus comes for our mistakes. He loves our mistakes because that's intimacy with him. He loves us to come before him and fix our mistakes and help us from our hurts and redeem us from the things that are holding us back. The addictions, the suffering, the unforgiveness, the hatred, the anger, the, the, uh, the abuse, the, the lack of finances. Can I get a hallelujah? He's here to transform and change us and build us. He wants to redeem us into a life that will bring us holiness, freedom, purity. He wants to adopt you into, uh, into his home. He wants wants to make you a child of God. He wants to say, you are my son. You are my daughter. You're now writing out of my checkbook. You're now getting all of your debts paid by me. You're my son. You're my daughter. Why aren't you living like that? Why are you rejecting the life that I have for you? Jesus endured it all. We sang a song, he paid it all. And he prevails. And through all of, our, all of our rejections, all of the struggles, all the people that have been naysayers and the people that we've naysayed, in all of that, he lives. And because of that, we live in Jesus Christ. In the final five verses, there's this moment where Jesus is getting brutalized And it's not no longer physical beating. He's carrying his cross and he's walking to Calvary. And people are now mocking and spitting and making fun of. And you know me? I got such a low self-esteem and a bad attitude that I'm like, I'm going to spit back at you. But he stays silent. You're going to mock me? I was going to say something really bad. I was going to say, I'll tell you what I was going to say. But uh, thankfully, I bit my tongue there for a second. I, I, I spew back venom. I struggle. You know, you want to go toe-to-toe? 
I'm a smart aleck with an ASS after the end of that. But not Jesus. He stays silent. The servant stays silent. He stays silent. And then at the end, he's satisfied because he know he stayed silent. And in this, he's vindicated because God wins. It's over. Victory is done. We don't have anything to worry about. We've just got to live in that victory mindset. You know, as we transition to the New Testament, there was a bunch of Jewish believers. They call them today Messianic Jews, but they were a bunch of Jewish believers because that was the first message to them. And there's a lot of Jewish believers. And they were struggling at one point to deal with the old law and how to deal with the new law. Well, I'm a, I'm a Jew and I've been taught this is who God is. And now you're saying it's the same God. And so they wrote this book. It's called the book of Hebrews. And they start dealing with some of the issues of the Jewish religion. And here's what it says about this place and about rejection. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, let us then hold firmly to the faith that we profess. profess. Let us then hold firmly that Jesus is alive. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. Jesus is alive and he's here and he's working deeply in someone's heart right now. For we have a great high priest who has gone to the very presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God. The Jewish religion had a high priest. He basically told everybody what to do and how to live. And he was the essence of their religion. He says our high priest is, is, not, the one, is not one who can't feel sympathy for our weakness. On the contrary, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. He's saying, in this place, when you're coming before God and you have been rejected and you have been hurt from your mom or your dad, your husband, your wife, your children, or someone in your life, your boss, that he says, I understand and I feel your pain. And he wants you to make that part of your daily walk. He understands and feels your pain. Let us then have confidence or come boldly. Then and approach God's throne where there is grace. In God's throne, as we come before him, there's grace. And here's the beautiful thing about grace and mercy. There you will receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. Just when we need it. When we come boldly before God, when we come, in, come into the throne room and we believe that in that throne room I'm going to meet God, this Jesus alive God in my life, in that I can come boldly knowing that he will bring comfort and he will bring grace and mercy right when I need it, right in that moment where the pain is too great. Jesus was rejected. All we need to do is understand that and move to that. I want to talk about four areas that Jesus was rejected that would make sense to us. Because you know what? As human beings, human life is about suffering. Whoever told you that life as a human being wasn't going to be full of suffering was full of dot, 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 dot. We'll say crap. Because the truth is, like uh, uh, Ryan did a great job praying for the kids today, didn't she? And my heart broke because you got this kid going, man, it's hard to grow up and be alive. And then I think about my girls and their life. I think about your kids and their life. This world's hard. And people are mean. Turn to someone and say, people are mean. That's really good Christianity right there, you guys. What would you guys talk about, church? Oh, people are mean. 
And I told the person next to me, you're mean. Here's four areas that people rejected. Jesus faced rejection from his family members. Has anybody been hurt? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to hear. But I just want you to know if you've been hurt, I, I know Jesus feels that pain. Family members hurt own family members. The Bible tells us in John chapter 7, verse 5, that not even Jesus' brothers believed him. His brothers didn't believe him. Jesus' own family rejected him as the Messiah. As he was on earth, he was a son, he was a brother, and if he had brothers and sisters, then he was probably an uncle and a nephew and a cousin, and all of those people were rejecting him as he goes into his hometown. It says he had human relationships, and if you're alive and you have human relationships, you've probably been hurt by a human. When love wasn't returned, wasn't wanted, and wasn't accepted, that hurt Jesus. It hurts me. The human side of Jesus was broken. His family members rejected him. His community rejected him. You know, I'm from Anaheim. I grew up in Anaheim, born in Santa Barbara, got transported to Anaheim. And, you know, I, I don't do ministry in Anaheim. And I was thinking about it today. I'm like, what would it look like if I was a pastor in Anaheim? I, I did so much stuff out there not good that people could come in every week and go not that guy he's a liar he's a cheat and a thief and all these other things and the ministry would take a beating God had to put me in a different place Jesus the same thing and Matthew chapter 13 he heads back to his hometown hometown hero coming back Jesus heads home and he does what he normally does. He goes before the synagogue and starts teaching. And all of a sudden, the people in the synagogue and around him was like, who's this guy? He's going to do miracles now? Isn't this the guy that lives by the AMPM over there? Yeah, son of Joseph, that carpenter. Yeah, his mom, Mary. He's got those brothers and his sisters. They're pretty nice. One's kind of cute. We know this guy. He's going to do all this, and he's going to claim he's the Messiah and the Lord, and I'm going to worship him? They were deeply offended by him, and they refused to believe. And Matthew 13, 57 and 8 says, Jesus told them powerful words. A prophet is honored everywhere except his hometown among, and among his own family. And he only did a few miracles there because of their unbelief. He's like, I'm not going to waste my time in Nazareth because they don't believe me. Jesus was rejected by the people who claimed to love him. Anybody ever been to, I better say hotel because I don't want to act like you guys have cockroaches. You turn on a light in a hotel and cockroaches scatter. I think we stayed one last summer at our beautiful vacation that I took my family on. We had this one and there was things moving for sure. And, uh, you know, when Jesus went to the cross and when Jesus got arrested before he went to the cross, his disciples scattered like cockroaches. When trouble hit, they ran. He predicted two of those people that would run. And he basically told them they would all run. But two of them, in Christ and his goodness, he predicted Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. He saw it coming. In his humanness, he's like, I see it, but it still hurts. It still hurts. I don't care who you are. When someone says you love me and then you walk away from me and you don't love me anymore, that hurts. John chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, somebody in this room, they're going to betray me. That hurt him. Why? Because it would hurt you. 
It hurt me. It hurt my family if people were betraying us. Betrayal hurts. Peter rejects Jesus three times in the gospel. It's written in all of the gospels. When something's written in all four gospels, what does that mean? It's important. And when you read them and you do the harmony of the gospels, you see different elements of it and it kind of enhances the story. But there's a reason here because this is important. Jesus denied. Why did, G, uh, why did Peter deny Jesus? He's the leader of the church. He's, he's the rock that they're going to build a church. You know, just like you and I, when we reject Jesus, we get weak and we cripple in fear. And in that moment, we don't say, well, yeah, I believe, or no, you're wrong. Jesus is real, and he is alive. You should see what he's doing in my life. We get weak, and we get in fear, and so we don't say anything, and ultimately, we reject him. This sudden denial of Jesus three times, Jesus got hurt by that. Sudden total heartbreak reaction. Uh, when Peter says, I don't know this man, I never did, that broke his heart. That broke his heart like nothing other before. Jesus felt that. He felt the pain. Pain is something that we can understand. Here's the last part, and this is the human part. Theologically, this is the human part of the message. Jesus faced rejection from his father. Now, theologically, as God, you don't reject yourself, but as a human, there's a level of rejection. Let me explain that. That night of suffering when Jesus was being led to slaughter this lamb being led to slaughter he felt sorrow he felt death he felt anguish he was in so much uh, uh, anguish that he started they say sweat blood now has anybody ever had to have surgery the night before and they don't sleep that night right or or your boss calls you at five as you're walking out the door i need to see you at eight no sleep there Probably could start planning your vacation that weekend because you're probably not going to be working that following day. Or your wife or husband or your kid calls you, I got something to tell you. It's like, oh, here we go. You know me, I got to deal with it. Here, Jesus knew what was happening. Jesus' pain was approaching, and he knew it, and he was in anguish. Our human servant knew the big thing was that he was going to be separated from God. There was going to be a moment in human speaking that he was going to feel abandoned and rejected because sin separates. Sin separates us from God. Your sin and my sin and what I do separates me from the will of God and the love of God and the work of God and the ministry of God because I allow the things that I'm doing to separate me. And in this moment, sin separates as Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew 26, 40, uh, 46, 27, 46. This is my favorite part of the passion. My buddy Jeremy. Everybody say hi, Jeremy. Jeremy's up here and he looks like this apostle. And he gets up there and he says it in his great language. Elo, 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 Shabbatni or something like that. I don't know what he says. <laughs> but show up and you'll hear it. And basically what it's saying is... My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? And for this moment, here's something I really want you to think about. Jesus is theologically not separated from God. He's repeating Matthew 22. As God, he's never separated. But as a human, there's distance because in a moment, sin is going to come upon him. And God and sin can't be in the same room, can't be in the same area. And there's going to be a second where he is going to be distant from God. Think about that. 
If you were just distant from God for a second, there's a second. You're distant. There's a second. You're distant. Is that important to you at all? For Jesus, it was the most important thing of his life. If just for a second he received sin and then instantly it's washed away and he's connected with God, that second was the most critical, most painful part of his whole life. And we, we can take weeks off. We can take days and months and years off. Not an issue. But for Jesus, that one second was so critical and so powerful, he didn't want to do it one more second. We should have that same desire. I know it's not possible, but we should strive for that. Every minute of the day, every hour of the day, every day we should put God before us. I want to close with the, the redeem, re, redeeming from rejection. I want to close this. Going back and saying, I'm not going to be part of this rejection syndrome. I'm not going to push my rejection on other people. But I, I need to tell you this story, and I'll try and do it quickly. I was asking a group of leaders at church on Tuesday. I was like, what does it mean to grow spiritually? How do you know I'm in this spiritual place of growth? And I was telling this story, and I'm like, I wasn't for sure I was going to say it at church because... There's a group of men, there's not at this church, it's just in Ventura County, that I pray for regularly to make sure my spiritual condition is right. And I'm praying for these guys, and I do this kind of religious prayer. It goes, it's something I do regularly to make sure my spiritual condition is right. And in this prayer, there was this moment where I made this groan. Like, uh, and then I said some words, very repetitive words. I've said probably 20 to 30 times for these guys and Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 to uh, 12 to 14 talks about going from a, a Christian that's living on spiritual milk where you're letting someone like a pastor feed you a little bit of milk every week and that you're barely living to whole meat to spiritual meat and in this prayer at some point I, my, my prayer was rejected you know Cain and Abel Cain, Cain was a farmer uh, a, a farmer and Abel was a shepherd and at one point God received uh, Abel's thing and rejected Cain's in my prayer God's like Jeff I've heard this prayer you need to change that prayer you need to have a different conversation He's like, that groan, that moan, that struggle that you're having, I want to deal with that. And here's what uh, Romans 8.28 says about, 8.26. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know that we ought to pray. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit intercedes for us through our wordless groans. And at this moment, I'm praying for these guys. And I make this groan. And all of a sudden, the Lord says, Jeff, I want to deal with that. And he says, have a different conversation with me. And I started saying, Lord, teach me what to pray. And all of a sudden, I was dealing with this thing inside of me and nothing about them. And I believe someone in this room or all of us need to have a different conversation with God this week. And start dealing with the moans and groans and getting away from your repetition, devotion, and your repetitious prayer. And really let God speak in a deep way to your life. For God redeems us from redemption. Redeem means he buys back. He accepts. He puts on a cloak. He puts on a mantle. He puts on a robe. He puts on a ring and says, Today I adopt you and you're no longer rejected. No matter what humanly has happened to you, I receive you. And now you are my son and my daughter. You are part of my kingdom. You are in and not out. 
You are not rejected no matter who rejected you. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery leading you again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. In Christ, you are adopted. You have a permanent love, an unfailing love, a a never-ending love that will bring you into a place that your your rejection can't overcome. Jesus overcomes and destroys your rejection. Here's what Galatians 5.1 says. So Christ has truly set you free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up in the slavery to law, to the law. As we close up today, I want you to realize this. You're free, and the only reason why you don't remain free is you get yourself tied back up. You get yourself caught back up into your old ways, to your old prayers. And, you know, I I challenge you to pray to God in a different way today and tomorrow. Speak to that, that place deep within inside of me. And let the ministry of God start to take over. As I was praying, God started to speak about my my insignificance that I feel and the rejection that I've had and the hurt that I've had in my life. And it was no longer about them, but it was about me growing spiritually into a place that was meaty and hard to handle, but it was good. And it changed me. And I want that to change you. Here's, Here's a couple things that we do. So what do you do with this? How do I deal with my rejection? I, I know this is cliche, Christian cliche, but you've got to fix your eyes on something other than yourself. As Christians, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We look to him as I'm feeling rejected. I'm like, this is not me. I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to believe that Jesus has adopted me and made me whole. I fix my eyes on Jesus. The first verse I ever mem- remembered was uh, Matthew 7, 24 to 7, 27 said this. Build your life. Build your life on a rock, not on sand. Because when the storm comes, your house will be washed away on sand. But on a rock, your life will be built and great things will happen. It also says... Uh, build your life on the cornerstone that was rejected the one that was rejected you should build your life that cornerstone that was rejected is really the essence of our life when thoughts of rejection come I need to take them captive take captive every negative thought when I have something my head's got crazy stuff going on trust me hang out with me for a couple minutes you'll see the craziness and I've got to take that thought I'm like Jeff I did that but that's not me anymore I've experienced that. I've hurt them. I've done that. And Lord, that's not me. Build me up and let me walk into a place of freedom. Take that thought captive. And finally, live in Jesus Christ because he is alive. Live in Christ. Paul says in Philippians, to live in Christ is really to live, to die, I gain. But to live is really live in Jesus Christ. Let's live today for him. For he is alive right now. Will you just bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we come before you and there's someone in this room that is so broken and so rejected from their family. I ask right now that you start to break down those walls of pain and suffering. That the prayer warriors are interceding for that woman and that man and that child. Build us up, Lord those that are distant or separated or don't know God they can come into the Lord by saying a prayer of salvation and no longer let the world hold them hostage but they can be free in you Lord 
For those that want life and everlasting life, you can repeat a prayer after me. It goes like this. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart. Come into my soul and be my Lord and Savior. You died and rose again for me. Take my rejection and abolish it. Holy Spirit, come over my life and make me a child of God and teach me how to follow you all the days of my life. We love you, King Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.